Hello, and welcome to Bostonian Rap. My name is Rachel Meiselman, and you are listening to me on WBCALP 102.9 FM Boston. This is Boston's community radio station. The following commentary does not necessarily reflect the views of the staff and management of WBCA or Boston Neighborhood Network. If you would like to express another opinion, you can address your comments to Boston Neighborhood Network, 3025 Washington Street, Boston, Massachusetts, 02119. To arrange a time for your own commentary, you can call WBCA at 617-708-3241, or you can email radio at bnntv.org. Hello, and welcome back. Uh, again, this is Rachel Meiselman, and you're listening to me on Bostonian Rap. This is WBCALP 102.9 FM Boston. Now, I right now, I'm practically jumping out of my skin. There's so much going on in the city, and none of it's good. None of it's good. And, and for the people who are maybe a little less familiar with Boston. When I say the city, I'm talking about Boston. Uh, So a lot of times, if people come from elsewhere, if they come from outside of Massachusetts, and they hear people talking about the city, uh, you know, if if it's on the East Coast, people might think of New York. Well, when I say the city, I'm talking about Boston. So there's a lot going on in Boston, and as I said, none of it is particularly good, or a lot of it is is particularly bad. And it's just, I'm really, like I said, at this point, jumping out of my skin, ready to pull my hair out. Uh, we have a serious uptick in crime. We have failing schools. We do not have affordable housing. And our representation, to say that it's subpar, that is, that's an understatement. Uh, do we have some good elected officials? Absolutely. But many of them are really, quite frankly, terrible. If I were to vote Tomorrow, like if we were, if we had elections for the Boston City Council tomorrow, uh, in principle, I have five voices on the council. Uh, so, just you know, like everybody else, uh, there are four at-large councilors, and at-large just simply means that they represent the entirety of the city and the Harbor Islands. And then you have district councilors, and I, the district I'm in, there's actually a special election for it today. (laughs) Uh, So without knowing who my new district uh, counselor is, uh, I would say that if elections were held actually right now, (laughs) right on the spot, like right here and now, uh, I would only vote for one of my at-large counselors, and that is Michael Flaherty. I have to say that, really, we have, in this city, we have overwhelmingly prioritized making history over 
making a difference. We have prioritized making history over making sense. And I think that that actually is is the part that's really uh, that has resulted in our undoing. Uh, and, and and to say that Boston right now is on its knees is not an understatement. And I'm going to go through why. So today, uh, it was discovered that uh, there was uh, ammunition. Uh, ammunition was found in one of the three exam schools. So... You know, I'll say for people who, again, I always like to uh, give a little bit of background when I'm speaking uh, about something that is very particular to Boston because I don't want to assume that people who are listening well outside of Boston uh, will necessarily know what I'm talking about. But, you know, our exam schools are considered, um, they are considered elite and you know, our, our, our schools, I would say exam schools, have been under attack. Uh, and it's, it's a tremendous shame because when you look at Boston public schools in general, uh, it's very much a troubled school district. And, and in saying that, I'm not saying that they're not good educators because there are. There are some great teachers. There are some great administrators. But... We have um, incredibly poor leadership. Uh, we have as superintendent Brenda Casilius. I don't think she ever should have been hired as a superintendent. And we have a school committee. And just like seemingly every other position, whether it's elected or appointed, People are prioritizing, as I said, making history and diversity. But it's not real diversity because even though there might be different looking faces, everybody tends to think the same way. So there really isn't much room uh, for people who are conservative. Uh, there, there are not a whole lot of places uh, for people who are Republican and it's it's tremendously frustrating, um, especially uh, given all the people who are on the political left who love to talk about diversity nonstop. So as I, sa- I started to say, um, Boston Latin Academy, it's one of the three exam schools. We have Boston Latin School, and I'm actually an alumna of Latin School. We have Boston Latin Academy, and then we have the John D. O'Brien School of Science and Mathematics. Now, um, today, uh, a bag of ammunition was found on the grounds of Boston Latin Academy. And to make the situation even worse, uh, I understand that there was a mix-up in getting the information out to the parents. So I think that uh, the information was sent out to parents possibly of another one of the exam schools. Uh, but that's that's just 
that's just making a bad situation worse because you have lots of parents who are very, very worried. They don't know what's going on. They're scared that their child might be in danger. Their children might be in danger. Uh, and then other parents who who are actually who are actually the ones that are impacted uh, don't know what's going on. So it's just it's 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 a very sad, sorry situation. And if we have this going on at what is supposed to be one of our elite schools that virtually, essentially promises. Uh, the students, upon successful completion, a ticket to college, higher education, that we have this going on at one of these schools, it's, it's, I, I don't even know what to say. And, and it's getting harder and harder to make an argument against state receivership. Now, please understand, I'm not thrilled about the idea of receivership. But on the other hand, I don't see Mayor Wu really addressing the situation effectively. And the current superintendent, whom, again, I'm not a fan of, she's actually going to be stepping down. So that will be a position that needs to be filled. And I, I can only imagine who is going to be taken over because I read the description. And so, again, you know, I'm looking at it and you would think that there would be a priority on someone who is familiar with Boston, someone who is focused on achievement, but I see something about anti-racism, and 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 I'm and I just I don't know how bad the situation has to get for someone, anyone with a modicum. I don't know if I want to call it common sense or know-how, any kind of knowledge that that that. That that's substantial. I'm wondering when such a person is going to step forward, because as it stands, we're we're going right over a cliff. And so you have people. It's interesting because one might, you know, from the outside might assume that you have people on one side of the aisle who are maybe for state receivership, whereas other people are not, uh, you know, people on the other side of the aisle. And that's actually not true. It's interesting because I've seen people on both sides of the aisle who are for and against state receivership. The problem is, is that the people who are against it, they don't have a plan. They don't have a plan to turn around the schools. So we can't be in a situation where our children are not getting an education. And it's it's almost like it's it's like the theater of, of the absurd because, you know, we just, I mean, I guess we're seeing the light of day 
uh, in regard to uh, the pandemic. Uh, I, I wouldn't go as far as to say that, oh, everything's normal again, um, because I'm, I'm beginning to uh, doubt that <laughs> it was uh, normal before. But it's, it's um, I think for, for lack of a, of a better phrase or back, lack of a better word, uh, I guess we are uh, approaching at least a semblance of normalcy. Uh, you know, even on public transportation, what masks are encouraged, but it's not mandatory. Um, but, you know, our children have greatly suffered. Our children have unbelievably suffered during this pandemic. If we think about how hard it's been on adults to process all of this, how do you think it's been for children? And I would think that you know, wearing masks, certainly in the beginning, I would imagine that that was something scary. Um, <coughs> I would imagine that that was something scary because, you know, we're, we're all, we're visual, right? We're, we're visual creatures. And this idea of masks, and, and particularly at such a young age, you know, to see everyone around you with with his or her face covered, I would imagine that at first that was fairly jarring for a lot of young children. Um, and then also, you know, children were at home, so they were learning online. And learning online is something that's wonderful or it can be wonderful, it can be a nice option for people who have a busy schedule, who have time just enough for the class, but not necessarily the commute. So, you know, once they get home from the comfort of their living room or their bedroom or their kitchen table, they can assist in on a class and get credits, get an education. It's great. And I, you know, I myself, you know, I spent a number of years in the classroom uh, in private language schools, and uh, certainly um, as, as time went on, and all in all, I was in a classroom for 13 years, and, and toward the end, uh, certainly, uh, you know, online classes, or at least uh, technology why don't I, I put it like that, uh, phrase it like that, technology had very much become a tool that teachers were expected to adopt and bring into the classroom. So even though it was in person, and this is, of course, before the pandemic, um, and then, you know, after, after we were allowed to go back in the classrooms, uh, you know, certainly... We were we were encouraged, highly encouraged, to use technology to kind of juice up our lessons, to make them more interactive, to be uh, to to encourage a more innovative, creative environment that would make the students want to learn. But I think for young children, and just in general, but particularly for young children. If the entirety 
of the course material is online, that can be very difficult. So again, it can be something that's great because it allows people uh, flexibility to to learn. It gives people an additional option, people who are very busy or, or pe- for people uh, for whom um, commuting isn't necessarily the easiest or best option or people who might be limited uh, in terms of their mobility. So it can be a wonderful, excellent option. Um, but broadly speaking, online learning requires a certain amount of discipline. And I think that when you're talking about children, especially young children, very young children, they need to be in a classroom. They need to be exposed to different stimuli and going to school isn't just a matter of academic instruction. It also gives the children a chance to be children. Uh, it teaches them how to socialize. Um, and in the interaction with other children, they learn a lot of valuable skills. They learn um, how to cooperate, how to collaborate. They learn how to prioritize uh, when they're involved with different games and different classroom assignments. So really, it's the place for a child is in the classroom, not at home in front of a computer screen. So yes, our children have been through so much. And, you know, some people might disagree with what I just said, but a lot of what I said really has actually... You know, there's ample proof out there that it, that lead that lends some kind of credence to what I, 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 you know, I'm saying because you, you know, the stories you hear they they've been, you know, a fair amount of them, where we're learning that even students that are usually strong were struggling. So it definitely wasn't an ideal situation. I think that our children lost a lot during these years, and I don't quite frankly know how and when they're going to be able to make up for what they lost out on during, you know, these two years plus. But I mean, even before that, there were issues in most of the Boston public schools. So the pandemic has just, it's just, it's added another layer or two and I have to say to myself, what what are we doing? Like, wh- <laughs> how are we preparing our children? And then if that weren't enough, you have Julia Mejia, Boston City Councilor Julia Mejia, and Boston City Councilor Aaron Murphy. These are both, um, both counselors are, are at large. They want to introduce a mental health curriculum. Are you serious? Like, <laughs> so what? What? I mean, leave our children alone. I mean, I, I I agree that you know there needs to be wraparound services, but I don't think that needs to extend to the curriculum of our children. I really don't. And where do they think they're going to plug in this new component uh, of? of, you know, the BPS curriculum, like where, where is it supposed to fit in? What is going to be cut out? Because I would imagine that, you know, some other subjects would be moved around or phased out, cut out, 
to make room for this if it were to go through. I, I don't think that having a mental health curriculum is something that the children need. What the children need is they need to be in schools that are not falling apart, <laughs> where the quality of the air is good, where the temperature uh, is such that the children aren't shivering or sweating. Um, it, it should be, They should be in an environment where the water is drinkable. <laughs> they should be uh, in classrooms where they have supplies that are current, modern. So I'm thinking about books uh, and the like. It's, I just, I just, I don't know what to say. And what's interesting is that Counselor Mejia has done a lot of work around education. Um, I, I mean, she's done work. <laughs> I don't know if any of it, how much it ultimately is worth. And, and I'm not saying that to be flippant or disrespectful, but at the end of the day, I have to ask myself questions because I see what she's proposing and, and, it's, and it's not, it doesn't seem to be anything that's conducive to bringing about any kind of solution or moving the needle in a positive, in a positive direction. And then you have, um, as I said, Erin Murphy who, working with Mahi on this mental health curriculum bit, uh, she was a teacher in Boston Public Schools for 22 years. So I would think that she would be well—and she worked with little ones, right? I, th- I believe she worked, you know, with kindergarten age or maybe a little bit older, but that was, that was basically the age group. So I- I'm trying to figure out— <laughs> what exactly these these two counselors are doing, right? You know, what I want to see is someone who's going to stand up and say, look, we need to make sure that our children have a foundation. There's all kinds of concern about how they feel. We're quick to assure them that they're just fine and they're queens and they're kings despite the trumped-up slights that they face. And I say trumped-up because it seems like we're, we're creating situations where people are supposed to feel oppressed. And if they don't, there's something wrong with them. What all of our children deserve regardless of their color, regardless of the zip code, regardless of economic status, anything that you could possibly imagine, faith, origin, anything, what our children all deserve is a strong academic foundation. And they're not getting that. Uh, I remember when Beth Lindstrom ran in, uh, she ran for U.S. uh, Senate. Uh, So, you know, you know, a number of people will, of course, remember that, uh, you know, given that it's such a, a high profile, uh, you know, it's a very um, high profile uh, political office. So she ran um, for U.S. Senate in 2000, was it, was it 2018? And 
she, um, she, you know, one of the things she said was, well, I was, you know, responsible for pushing for financial literacy for high schoolers. So I, I, you know, I'm not, obviously I'm not going to call her a liar. Um, um, but I don't know, you know, I, I didn't get too many details beyond that. Like, I don't know if maybe she was part of a group um, that advocated for such a thing. I don't know if uh, she actually reached out to her representation on Beacon Hill, you know, in the Massachusetts legislature and said, this is what we need. So I, I don't quite know all the details, but, you know, when she said it, you know, I took her at her word, of course. And, you know, and I said, well, that that's a very good thing. You know, that's what our children need to learn, financial literacy, not how to express their feelings on cue. Um, but, you know, I, I remember also thinking that, yes, it was good, but why are we starting with high school? We should be starting a lot younger. We should be starting in middle school. And very recently, um, I heard that there was, it had, it had passed, uh, I believe it passed through both houses in the legislature, Massachusetts legislature, um, and I believe that Baker, Charlie Baker, signed it into law. So I, I have to get the details, um, but I, I believe, I do believe that it was a bill that was signed into law. That's what I think. But let me let me let me double check on that. Um, but what I understand is that there is now going to be financial literacy for all our children, like you know, at all ages, which I think is even better. I mean, I think that's great. I mean, a six-year-old could already start, you know, learning about nickels and dimes and pennies, no? Uh, you know, our children could get little piggy banks. Um, maybe, you know, one day a week they could have a lemonade stand or a bake sale, right? Um, and, and obviously, you know, the younger they are, it might be a little bit more difficult to count. Uh, it might take them a little bit longer of a time. But, you know, it's just it's getting them acquainted with money. It's getting them acquainted with the idea of, oh, okay, I have. Um, I have a brownie. You know, this is a product. <laughs> I'm selling it. I sell it and I get money. Oh, okay. You know, it's, it's never too early to start exposing our children to the arts. I mean, age appropriate, of course, right? Uh, you know, uh, you know, maybe music, age-appropriate dancing. Um, it's not too, it's never too early to uh, start reading to our children, introducing them to the joys of reading. And they should have a strong foundation in the maths and sciences. So, you know, I don't just talk about STEM. I talk about STEAM because I think that arts... You know, it's a big part of our children's foundation as well. This is what our children should be learning. They should be learning from the earliest age. They should start being exposed to the theoretical as opposed, uh, in addition rather, excuse me, to the practical. So that when they're 
when they're 10 or 11, they already have some kind of foundation that they can start using to move and advance to the next level. Because when you're 10 and 11, that's not the age to start getting a foundation. You know, you have some people, I mentioned the exam schools a little bit earlier, and they're, you know, they're the elite institutions uh, in Boston. Now, let me be clear, there are other excellent schools too, but when you're talking about in terms of years in existence, and when you're talking about schools that prepare children, students for college, especially uh, elite colleges, you know, you think primarily of the exam schools. And so we have people who think, and, and, it, and it cracks me up all the time, that they can start preparing students you know, at 10, you know, they think they can uh, put them through a, uh, an exam school boot camp. You're not going to teach a child over the course of a summer <laughs> how to compete with children who have been exposed to some form of financial literacy, who have been reading steadily, who have been exposed to art, you know, been taken to museums and the like, you know, who have been exposed to, um, uh, you know, the sciences, I mean, as much as possible at such a young age, uh, who've, who've had, uh, you know, um, addition, subtraction, uh, multiplication and division. I remember, I still remember when I was uh, eight years old, I was already learning multiplication and I had to get up and, you know, in front of my teacher and the rest of the students would be working. And, and this was true for all the students. Like, you know, we'd get up one at a time and the rest of us would be working and we would have to recite the timetable. So it would be one, okay, now this week it's two, this week it's three, this week it's four. And if we were successful, we got a little star, right? So it was, it was encouragement. I mean, but I'm learning all of this, right? So by the time I'm 12 years old, I'm ready to take the exam for the, for, for the exam schools. I'm ready to take that test. But you can't cram, you know, what, eight years of learning into two or three months over the summer. It's just, it's not possible. So let me get back to what I started out with in talking about the shock of finding, you know, ammunition at one of the one of these, you know, supposed to be elite exam schools. Um, but it's not just it's not just at the exams. It's just it's all the schools now. But but I guess that that we have it in an environment where we expect the children to be studying Latin and we expect them to be thinking about applying to maybe Harvard 
or maybe Dartmouth College. Instead, they have to worry about bullets? Really? And, and, and don't get me wrong, this isn't appropriate in any school, and no child should deserve this. But it's, it's really, it's a strong statement, and it's a very sad statement of affairs when you have such pervasive dysfunction. And when you have, throughout the school district, you have situations and the children aren't safe. So a few months back, there was a student that physically attacked the principal at a school that wasn't, that isn't too far from uh, where I spent part of my childhood. And so I remember I, you know, we got, um, I'm a member of what is called the Boston Medical Reserve Corps. They needed extra hands at the school, um, you know, just like things like, uh, you know, in the cafeteria, just to make sure everything, you know, was going smoothly. Um, I did have a chance to, uh, you know, I was in a classroom and I, it, was, it was a study, a, you know, it became a study hall, uh, study period rather. And, and I kind of just monitored it, you know, to make sure everything was fine, you know, that no one needed anything. But it was, it was, it was alarming. It was, I mean, everything transpired, you know, without incident, but just the fact that, that this had happened and that there was a need for volunteers from the public, it, it's, it's alarming, it's infuriating, it's discouraging, and it's immensely sad. There, uh, a very short time ago, very short time ago, uh, what, what was in the last week or two, uh, there was uh, a school in South Boston, and a bullet was found. And it's just, you know, what are parents supposed to do? What are parents supposed to think? And, and I'm going to say that this is incredibly serious because if people cannot send their children to the public school system— then what do you think is going to happen to our families? Like, do you think they're going to stay here? I mean, good schools, that is a reason why parents, families, people want to come to a city or a town and raise a family. But if you don't have good schools, why are they going to come here? And if people are already here, how long do you expect them to stay? And quite honestly, this, this should be, people should be hanging, like the, these politicians, and, them, and starting with the mayor on down, like, should be hanging their heads in shame. I mean, we're talking about a situation where Boston Public Schools is the oldest school district in the nation. And Boston, remember, 
And a lot of people just don't seem to know this. And it just kind of blows my mind. We are an education-based economy. We are an education-based economy. And that we have a public school system that's on life support? Oh, that's hor- that. that <laughs> I almost said horrifying. Um, it's mortifying. It's, it's unbelievably em- embarrassing. And, and it's just, it's, it's absolutely shameful. It's absolutely shameful. Our children deserve to be able to go to school, be safe, and learn, regardless of the school, regardless of the location. And it's just, that's just not happening. We need a constellation of schools within the Boston public schools that allow our children to learn and thrive and, and reach their potential. That's not what we have. And we don't have leadership. And when we have people like Boston City Councilor Julia Mejia arguing against state receivership, and then you have some other, and then you have some other people, some of whom are on the political right, and they're arguing against a state receivership as well, and they don't have plans either. And it's like, okay, so then what is supposed to happen? What is supposed to happen? What? You know, it's just, it, it blows my mind. Um, but, you know, but this is certainly one of the things that troubles me about the state of things in Boston. Uh, we are on our knees right now. And I just, I don't think that a lot of people kind of grasp the gravity of the situation. They really don't. And I think there was a time when, you know, maybe I could say or someone else might say, well, you know, you got to wake up. Well, there's no more time left to wake up. <laughs> I mean, if you don't understand the severity of the situation, I, I mean, it's, I, you know, I don't, I don't see someone all of a sudden having an epiphany. <laughs> um, well, let's go to a break. Right. Let's go to a break here because I'm like, <laughs> um, again, for those who are just tuning in, uh, my name is Rachel Meiselman. This is Bostonian Rap. Uh, you're listening to me on WBCA LP 102.9 FM Boston. This is Boston's community radio station. If you are struggling to afford Internet service for your household, there is a new government program that may be able to help. It's called the Affordable Connectivity Program, and it provides up to a $30 monthly discount to qualifying households. Find more information about the program, including if you qualify and how to enroll at FCC.gov ACP or call toll free at 877-384-2575. That's 877-384-2575. Grassroots Baseball's mission is to promote and celebrate the amateur game around the globe with a focus on growing interest and participation at the youngest level. The overarching goal of Grassroots Baseball is to work to give back by providing inspiration, instruction, and equipment to help ensure more children have the opportunity to learn, play, and enjoy the game. To learn more about Grassroots Baseball, you can visit www.grassrootsbaseball.org. I was in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean when it happened. There was a sudden jolt and our submarine crashed on the seafloor. We were in total darkness. 
That's Dr. Dejana Figueroa, a marine biologist and STEM teacher, talking about a deep sea dive she'll never forget. It's funny, when I was a kid, I was afraid of the ocean. And there I was, two miles below the surface. But as a scientist, you prepare for that. Using our training and a little creativity, we fixed the sub and finished our experiments. The dive was just too important. Every dive gives us glimpses at things few people ever get to see. Blowing creatures, fiery undersea volcanoes. When we got back to the surface, I kissed the ground and called my mom, of course. But you know what? I wouldn't trade that dive for anything. Dr. Figueroa uses her passion for STEM to discover new things and make the world a better place. She can STEM, so can you. Check out She Can STEM for more stories and inspiration. A message from the Ad Council. Cheek and Stem, a message brought to you by the Ad Council. Hello, and welcome back to Bostonian Rap. If you're just tuning in, thank you so much. If you've been listening all along, thank you so much. <laughs> uh, either way, I am honestly, truly grateful. Uh, it's, you know, it, it's, it's one thing to kind of um, get up there and express yourself uh, and I and I never mean for any of these shows to come off as, you know, one long rant. Um, I, I do try to give what I say structure, and I, I certainly hope that people hear a rhyme and a reason to it. Um, but just, it's, like I said, it's one thing to just stand up and express yourself, and, and that can be cathartic. But, you know, when you're doing it in a context where you are trying to provide structure, uh, it, it's very nice that people take the time uh, to listen and give feedback. So thank you, thank you, thank you. Very grateful. Uh, again, I got to give a shout out to the station, WBCALP 102.9 FM Boston. This is Boston's community radio station. So I talked at length about schools because uh, I'm very distressed about the situation. I think that I think something needs to be done. I think that we can't continue along the path that we're traveling upon. And if there is no state receivership, then there has to be a plan, like yesterday. And not a plan for a plan. Not a meeting about a meeting for a plan. <laughs> no, there, there has to be a plan with a timeline where at different points, concrete results are accepted, you know, like feasible results are expected to, to you know, be be there they're expected to be seen uh we we just we can't just have an endless debate about state receivership and then in the interim our children just aren't getting an education they're losing even more schooling uh and this is on top of what they lost during the pandemic we can't have that now, I also want to talk about, you know, a subject that I spoke about a lot last week. So, 
you know, we need a two-party state. Because for me, a lot of the problems that I'm seeing in my hometown stem from this not being a two-party state. And and certainly, and especially in this part of the state. If we had an actual Republican Party, look, they're Republicans. I'm one of them. They're not many of us, right? But if we actually had an organized, coherent message, then, and, and you know, and, and, and the thing is, is I'm not talking about, you know, the Republicans. I'm not talking about all of us. Like, you know, it doesn't have to be like Little House on the Prairie, you know, the Brady Bunch or something like, like, you know, where we all like, you know, somehow work it out and get along. And, you know, at the end of the day, we're all buds. It doesn't have to be like that. But there has to be like a modicum of respect, decorum. We don't have that. Now, a lot of people might argue, well, it's politics. I mean, do the Democrats have it? Do the, you know, you know, you know, do people have that in general, regardless of party affiliation anywhere in this country, especially at this point in time? And I would say, well, that that, you know, isn't an invalid point, but I still think that the Republicans here, I think we could work a little bit better together. And certainly we need to build the party. And this is something that I've been calling, and and, and I mean, I'm not alone, of course, but I've been particularly vociferous because I'm in a part of the state where we just don't have representation. And there have been times when I go to the polls and I look and there's literally no one to vote for, not because, oh my goodness, these choices are so poor. No, there is literally no name on the ballot. And it's, I'm tired of that. I'm, I'm just, I'm tired. That's not fair. And for the people who, who you know, well, as long as we have our representation or as long as I can run for an office and, and having a reasonable shot of getting in as a Republican, I mean, you know, it's okay. No, it's not okay. It's not okay that there's a whole section of the state that has been abandoned. And, you know, I have made it a practice to go to places where most Republicans do not go. And what's funny is that you have Rayla Campbell, who's running for secretary of state, which I I just I I don't know why. You know, and of course, you know, this is my opinion. I mean, someone could pop up and, you know, have a completely different opinion. God bless. Wonderful. Great. Um, You know, have at it. But I just I don't understand why she's running for office. Um, You know, it's not just a matter of because, well, we both ran in 2020 for the 7th Congressional District seat. I just, I don't, she doesn't know what she's talking about. That's my opinion. I don't think she should be running for the bus, (laughs) but this is my opinion. But the point in me bringing her up is that, you know, she has started, or I shouldn't say she started, I mean, all along, I've heard bits and pieces of things that I say 
coming out of her mouth. And so, you know, more recently, she started saying, well, you know, I go where other Republicans don't go. No, really, you don't. (laughs) When she ran for the 7th Congressional District seat, she actually spent more time campaigning outside the district (laughs) than inside. And it was funny because I saw one remark online on social media, I think it was on Twitter, and someone was like, why is she in Mansfield and she's running for the 7th Congressional District seat? So for those who are less familiar with the Massachusetts geography, that's well outside the 7th Congressional District. Uh, A lot of the 7th Congressional District is a good, you know, most of Boston, it's all of the city of Everett, Somerville, uh, Chelsea, Randolph, uh, and parts of Milton, and, you know, a good portion of Cambridge. So, you know, Mansfield is well outside that. Um, and it was funny because then someone else wrote, shh, don't tell her. You know, and I, and I found that funny, you know, that, and that's really what it comes down to. It's like, you know, it, it's this idea that, Either you don't actually know even what's in the district. And I and I, I like to think that she she did know. Um I think well, yeah, I think she did know at least that, right? She did she knew at least that, but not much else. But for some reason she thought that campaigning well out campaigning air quotes well outside the district was somehow gonna help her within the district. And it's like, no, it's it's not. And and certainly then if you're going to do something like that, and then of course the other idea is that, you know, she wasn't really interested in serving, which I firmly believe too. Um, you know, she just wants to get her name out there and she likes the limelight. But again, this is this is my opinion, and you know, hey, <laughs> there you go. Um, but but the point is, don't talk about how you're, you know, you're unafraid to go where other Republicans don't go. No, that's not true, Rayla. And you can say it as many times as you want. It doesn't make it any truer. Okay, so Rayla, like so many other Republicans, they don't come around these parts. Or if they come around these parts, they make a big show of it. And it's like, don't make a big show of it. Don't act like you're doing a, you know, some great, wonderful thing. Just come in here and meet the people. You know, just that, that's all you have to do. Come in here and meet the people. You don't know what a person's going to say unless you ask. Right? The worst that he or she could say is no. And I have a track record of going where Republicans don't normally go. So to hear it coming out of the mouth, her mouth or any other Republican's mouth who routinely avoids this part of the state, I just, I don't want to hear it. Because there's such a need. I don't want to hear people, you know, say things that just quite frankly aren't true. Or you know, come here and, like I said, make a show of it. It You know, it's it's got to be consistent and it's got to be ongoing. And, and the reason why is because P- 
people have to get used to seeing Republicans around. And we do need to have at least one other party because as it stands, Democrats can just make, you know, they can make deals amongst themselves. Okay, well, I'll run in two years for this. You can run afterwards and you, you know, and that does happen. That does happen. It, that's what happens. And, and, and I'll be fair, because this isn't a slam against Democrats. This is, and this isn't to just talk up Republicanism. Although I do think that, you know, Republicanism is, is, is very much needed and, and is very much uh, something that could counter what I see as the detrimental effects of progressivism gone wild. Um, I think that when you have any environment where it's overwhelmingly one party or another, I mean, you know, it gets to the point where people in that party that that enjoys that supermajority, they can just start, you know, it's not even a matter of what the people do or say, you know, because people don't vote. So then what does that mean? Well, so then that means the people who are involved in the political arena and who stand up uh, as elected candidates, uh, to stand up rather as political candidates, if they're part of that super party that's the supermajority, they can just work deals out among themselves. You know, and then when this one wants to run for this office, they all get behind that person. And then when that one wants to run for that office, they all get behind that person and so on and so forth. But how does that benefit the people? It doesn't. It doesn't, not at all. And what I want to say on a last note, because we're getting ready to wind down, is that we need Republicanism. I don't want to hear about moderate or conservative. We need to have Republicans that know the issues. Okay? I'm conservative. I know the issues. You can be moderate as a Republican and know the issues. That's what's most important, not whether you're conservative or moderate. And we need to be a two-party state. And by two-party state, I mean people, again, that know the issues that can then, after that, after articulating the issues, can then put forth solutions. Not people who are getting arrested, and I talked about that on the last show, or who are just making a lot of self-aggrandizing noise. No, we need people who can offer an alternative to what we're being served up. That's unfortunately all I have time for, though. I'll definitely be back next week. Uh, Thank you so much for listening. And uh, until then, take care of yourselves. The preceding commentary does not reflect the views of the staff and management of WBCA or the Boston Neighborhood Network. If you would like to express another opinion, you can address your comments to the Boston Neighborhood Network at 3025 Washington Street, Boston, Mass., 02119, attention WBCALP 102.9 FM. If you would like to arrange a time for your own commentary, call WBCA at 617-708-3241 or email us at radio at bnntv.org.